Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're joined today by a special guest, the Honourable John Baird, former Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister serving under Prime Minister Harper. The inflation story is continuing to move markets, and a major piece of the inflation story this year has been geopolitics, including the Ukraine crisis and its consequences on energy and agriculture. Also, a rising China and shifting supply chains, economic and military alliances across the globe. John Baird shares his views today on the geopolitical climate to help make sense of what it all means for Canada. John has had a front seat in the world of diplomacy, trade negotiations, national security, and decision-making at the highest levels of government. Some highlights from John's discussion with host Pamela Ritchie include a look at what are the most significant geopolitical factors right now, the impact of inflation in both Canada and globally, Canada's relationship with the U.S., infrastructure, housing, immigration, and more. This podcast was recorded on September 20th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Minister Baird, I'm going to try and get used to calling you John. Welcome. Great to be with you, Paula. Very glad to have you share your time with us. Thank you very much. So, John, we have the UN General Assembly kicking off today in New York. Might be an interesting time to sort of look at shifting narratives, the overall shifting alliances. I wonder if you can talk a bit about what you see opening up going into the future here, sort of post-COVID. Well, I think the two biggest issues confronting the world today in terms of geopolitical risk is obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine and uh, the domino effect that that's had. The West has really formed a strong alliance. Biden has struggled in many uh, respects, but building up that alliance of uh, Western democracies He's been uh, remarkably successful at. Uh, And of course, the Ukrainian forces are performing demonstrably better than anyone could have possibly have uh, predicted. And uh, the Russian forces have been quite weak. That just opposed with the um, rise of a more confident, more assertive China has uh, really shaken up global politics. It really has. What what do you make, actually, of the conference has been going on for the last sort of week or so off and on? and, And President Xi, you know, kind of saying a few things. I mean, are you surprised by some of the voices you saw there and what they said, President Xi? Also, Narendra Modi. I mean, we're seeing some very interesting voices with powerful populations behind them on the world stage. There was some suggestion that Russia should be kicked out of the G20. And I went to make a counter argument and someone said, why would you argue against that? I said, it's not, an argument, not, not that I'm arguing against it, but uh, you know, China wouldn't support that. Obviously, Russia wouldn't. India still has uh, close ties with uh, Russia. Even countries like Mexico and Brazil, who are notional democracies, have not brought in big sanctions against Russia. So you've seen a shifting of, uh, of alliances, and power is much more diffuse than it used to be. It used to be the United States could uh, rule the world in a major way, but now there's so many more regional alliances and ad hoc alliances, uh, whether it's in Asia, South America, uh, Africa. Uh, China is very aggressive at diplomacy, particularly in Africa and South America and the Caribbean. So what does Canada do with that assessment? 
I mean, I think Canada should always have its own unique foreign policy, but obviously we align ourselves with the same values and principles that uh, the United States and uh, the European Union do. Those are two strong, powerful alliances for us. At the same time, we can't count on the United States to uh, always be there for us. You know, they cancel Keystone Pipeline within six hours of taking office. Uh, they won't settle softwood lumber. And we just can't count on them, either under President Obama or President uh, Trump, let alone President Biden. So we need to have uh, our own bilateral relationship with China, with the uh, Association of Southeast Asian countries in, in Asia, and uh, with uh, the EU and the UK. So that's fascinating. And, and there are lots of new security packs. I mean, we will hear the, the Five Eyes reference, also AUKUS, which is not including Canada, but all of these sort of different partnerships in some ways to, to offset China's rising power. Again, where, where does Canada belong within that story? Well, it's funny. Um, we've been left out of AUKUS, uh, that yeah. uh, military alliance between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia. Uh, we're just missing an action. We weren't invited to participate and we weren't even told. When, we were uh, surprised, right? I mean, I, most people were, I thought were surprised. Maybe you would not be. I don't know. But I, I, would, I was surprised because, uh, you know, we have such a, a close relationship with all three of those countries. But Canada was just uh, missing an action. So that's uh, that's unfortunate. I mean, obviously, uh, we align ourselves with open markets and uh, with open societies. Uh, Canada is a pluralistic uh, country. We embrace pluralism. So we've been able to avoid a lot of the problems that have gripped uh, other countries. Fascinating. Um, let's go straight to, to military. There's lots, lots of other discussions within this, and we'll, we'll swing around to some of them. But do you think that in, in this sort of subject of security and, and military alliances that people are aware of the types of buildups going on? I mean, we, we do hear a lot about Taiwan. I mean, it's, it's, it's a touch point, and obviously we're watching what's going on in Ukraine with horror. But a lot is being built up on the security front around the world. Do you think that's known? Canada, um, I think we've neglected our military, haven't done nearly enough historically. NATO has an aspirational goal for every country to spend 2% of its GDP on uh, military spending. The United States spends 6 the United Kingdom spends 4 we spend 0.9, so um, we're often not taken seriously. Uh, we've done good work, the, the Liberal government in Ottawa has done good work, training uh, forces in uh, Latvia, training forces in Iraq to fight ISIS, and providing some limited military assistance to uh, to Ukraine. But uh, we're kind of missing an action with respect. One of the big shocks, though, about the war in Ukraine is that how weak the Russian forces, conventional forces have been. They're poorly led, poorly trained, and um, they're not. Uh, it's, it's very much aligned to Vietnam. I mean, the Vietnamese, they were defending their own country and they wanted the Americans out. And it's the same with uh, the Ukraine. So the, uh, the big story, the big takeaway is just how uh, weak uh, Russian forces are. I mean, basically, Russia is a, a big gas station with nuclear weapons. That's about uh, that's about it. Wow, that's, uh, I had not heard about it that way. What, what about China? I mean, China is certainly no slouch on, on the military security side of things, but they have actually built up quite significantly. Yeah, their, um, their naval forces have grown dramatically in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Uh, their conventional forces on the mainland are, uh, are very strong. I would give them a much higher grade than I would for the, uh, the Russian capacity. It's just if you're seeing a challenge that uh, Russia has had making a land incursion into Ukraine. Imagine how difficult it would be to make a naval incursion into uh, into Taiwan. I'm not a believer that, that China is going to take uh, Taiwan militarily, certainly not in the next uh, five or 10 years. Uh, I think they're probably watching the amount of sanctions and uh, amount of marginalization that uh, that Russia has faced from the West and uh, would probably be giving it a second, uh, a second uh, look. Having said that, uh, it's uh, for Xi, that would be a great uh, victory. To, he wants to be known as a, a Mao or a, a Deng Xiaoping. Uh, he wants to be a great leader of China. And that's something that neither of those two leaders could do by uh, reuniting uh, the whole China. So I think it's certainly something that, that could happen, but I don't predict it happening uh, anytime soon. So interesting. 
So, I mean, Canada sits in a, on an interesting world stage with, with limited military power, as you're pointing to, um, and probably does count on the United States militarily anyway. I mean, we've done some, say that blanket statement, I mean, we certainly carried our load in uh, Afghanistan. Not only did uh, we did the heavy left there, and so we have a smaller forces. We did do more than our share in uh, the war in in Afghanistan, and certainly our uh, our allies recognize that. How do you think Canada ultimately sort of is is viewed by the world? Back to the alliances, you know, what we can provide. We're we're certainly seen as a commodity producer, selling to the world, uh, and and trade is very very important because we're just such a small economy in comparison to others. What what does Canada need to kind of make sure it gets across in the coming years. I'd like to see us be more present. Too often we're not at the table in recent years. When I was in government, we played a very active role in the Middle East and North Africa, whether that was in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, whether it was uh, with the war in uh, in Libya, uh, our strong alliances with the Sunni Arab Gulf states, and obviously our uh, partnership with uh, with Israel was uh, was pretty powerful. Too often we're just not seen in that part of the world. We've had some of the challenges. We had the Trump challenge. So um, Christy Freeland, who I think was a competent uh, trade minister and, uh, and foreign minister, she has spent such a significant percent of her time dealing with uh, the renegotiation of NAFTA and dealing with a barrage of uh, explosions coming from the West Wing and the White House that um, she didn't have as much time as she would have, I'm sure, liked to have spent uh, in other parts of the world. Right, right. Do you see, I mean, do you see that changing? Uh, there's just more time. It's a different time going forward. I hope in the post-Trump and the post-pandemic world, that uh, the foreign minister can get out more. Uh, I mean, it was uh, the COVID and the, and the lockdowns were just abysmal for uh, diplomacy. Uh, you know, we had two foreign ministers who barely traveled at all, Minister Champagne and Minister Garneau, because, uh, you know, their, their their government's policies were so restrictive. I mean, we actually had our prime minister and minister had to go into lockdowns uh, when they returned from a, a G20. Um, now, can you imagine, you know, uh, the American president or the American secretary of state doing that? Uh, I think that was uh, that was a mistake, a little bit too politically correct in my judgment. Right, interesting. Both, well, those ministers, both those ministers were competent, and I mean, I frankly, I want them at the G7 table. I want them at the NATO meeting. You know, having our voice being heard. Sure. Do you think Canada looks like it can't get big infrastructure done right now to the world? Yeah. This is uh, this has plagued us for many many years, including the time that uh, that I was in government. When it comes to uh, big infrastructure projects. Uh, especially in the extractive sector, there's just a sense that it's just too difficult to get anything done. We've seen a lot of uh, investment leave, particularly in uh, in Western Canada, uh, in the uh, new oil and gas space. Uh, it just takes us a long time to get things done. I'll give you an example, even on a public infrastructure project. In 2009, when I was Minister of Transport, I announced that we funding for uh, the expansion and revitalization of Union Station in downtown Toronto. Yeah, it's and still going. It proudly proclaimed they could get it done in six years. And I thought, Oh my goodness! Why would it take six years? And that was uh, uh, 13 years ago now, and it's still uh, it's still under construction. Whereas I'd been to China uh, the week before that announcement, and they were building a rail terminal that was four times the size of the station. They got it all done in 18 months. So uh, they, they they can be more transformational. We've got to cut. We've got to not just cut the red tape. We've got to eliminate the red tape. Uh, when we did the uh, stimulus, uh, we did 23,500 infrastructure projects back in uh, 2008 to 2010. Mm-hmm. 23,500 all done in 30 months. We got rid of double environmental assessments, and there wasn't a single problem anywhere in the country. Uh, we had a one-page application form, and we just drove. Can you, to make did you sure repeat that? that? Did you say a one-page application form? We had a one-page application for the stimulus. We had a one-page application form. You didn't uh, have to go through the uh, the bureaucracy. 
that uh, the federal government puts uh, most projects through. And it was a great success. I mean, we made the environmental changes permanent. You have one project, one environmental assessment. And the whole notion that you're building a community centre uh, and you'd need a federal environmental assessment was ridiculous. You, know, you want to build a four-lane highway through Banff National Park? Sure, uh, you need a, a federal EA. But uh, we, just, we, just, we just really bulldoze through the regulation and uh, there's a lot of good things happen. Fascinating. You know, speaking of getting things done, I was looking at the, the new prime minister of the UK, Liz Truss. She announced today that basically the US-UK proposed trade deal um, isn't really going to happen or, you know, not not in the near future. Anyway, it was sort of hoped for a lot of trade partnerships were signed, inked or started due to the time you were in office. Do you think we'll get more on the trade front or are we kind of sewn up on that? I mean, I think there's always room to uh, there's always room to reduce trade barriers. The one I'll give huge kudos to Stephen Harper, and also give kudos to um, uh, Christy Freeland and uh, uh, Minister Champagne. Uh, we negotiated the Canada EU free trade deal and uh, negotiated the final days in office Canada's participation in the Trans Pacific Partnership, and those were great achievements. They both almost fell apart when the uh, Liberals took power, but they were able to rescue uh, both of them and to rescue NAFTA from Donald Trump. Uh, so those are um, those are strategic benefits for uh, for Canada. We can uh, trade with uh, the United States, with uh, Mexico, uh, with Pacific Alliance countries, and the two first observer countries in uh, South America. All of the EU, you know, in uh, in Asia, we've got free trade deals with Korea now, uh, with the TPP, Japan, Vietnam, which is a huge emerging uh, market, great potential there. We can also diversify uh, from the United States and China with uh, those deals. I'm confident we'll get a deal with the UK, but it's also going to be awfully hard. For the U.S. to ever get a, a UK, uh, a UPA, or especially an EU deal, because literally uh, Luxembourg can stop it. Or uh, one I know it's a lot of one, negotiating partners. One of the three parliaments in Belgium can uh, can throw a, a wrench into it. So we're we're really uh, fortunate. We just got to get the private sector in Canada to take advantage of these uh, of these opportunities in these uh, in these markets. It's fascinating. How do you think? The provinces are doing right now. What what what, did, what would be your thoughts on the provinces? I mean, for instance, oil producing provinces have have been able to whittle down their debt pretty significantly. They're looking they're oh. looking pretty good. Uh, you look at due to look at, the, the pandemic and on the price of oil. You look at what Jason Kenney uh, has done in Alberta. He's had some political challenges, as everyone knows, but they literally not just balanced their budget this year and last year, but uh, Jason Kenney paid down fifteen billion dollars worth of Alberta's debt. That's about 20 percent, 15 or 20 percent of their uh, of their debt, which is a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, where in Canada, we've just wasted a lot of money during the pandemic. You know, the, the assistance that we did during the global economic downturn the last time was to uh, make it targeted, timely and temporary. But we just took a fire hose, gave tax breaks to profitable multinational corporations, just you know, sent uh, sent money to everyone. And a lot of that was wasted. We have nothing to show for it. And uh, we just, uh, the government in Ottawa seems to just want to bring in more and more new entitlements, uh, whether, you know, they can't even issue someone a passport or a Nexus card. Our airports are a mess, but now they want to raise the nation's children with their national childcare program. They're moving forward on the dental program. Who's going to pay for all of this? We still have significant structural debts, deficits, and uh, the debt has doubled in the last uh, two and a half years. Historical debt of Canada has doubled. Like all the other prime ministers combined didn't go into as much debt as uh, as Justin Trudeau in this government. And that's why we're experiencing, uh, that's why it's fueling in, in inflation. Does inflation help whittle away the debt? Well, in a, in, a, in a small respect, it does. But it also causes a lot of misery for uh, for families and uh, and small businesses. You know, I talked to a friend the other day. as a two-bedroom condo in downtown Toronto. His mortgage is going up by $600. 
you know, for the average household, that's a body blow. And, you know, my mother was very appreciative to get the $500 check from Justin Trudeau in the middle of last year's election campaign. But now her cost of living has gone up by uh, $200 a month. So that, that one-time payment is long gone. Uh, we have the debt and now the inflation uh, to, uh, to boot. Right. What do you think is the right balance, just going back to trade for a second, of international trade with the United States versus diversifying to others? I mean, I know there can't be an exact number, but what's roughly the right balance? Well, I mean, we're so blasted to be beside the world's biggest economy. Sure. Uh, same, by and large, the same regulatory structure. I think that's been easy for uh, a lot of corporate Canada. Uh, those uh, those markets are so close. It's English speaking, a strong rule of law. But we've really got to diversify our uh, trade. Uh, there's so many other opportunities globally, and we've got the instruments in place that give us market access to those uh, those economies. So we'd be uh, we'd be smart to uh, to diversify. But it's it's almost like the um, the easy way out. Uh, I mean, in my conduct of my own business, I do a lot of stuff in the United States and, uh, and very little outside of uh, outside of North America. Right. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, well, they're our friends. <laughs> it's closer. And it's, it's easy. I think that's, uh, I think those, uh, those companies who are going to be uh, profitable are going to think globally. And we're so blessed in Canada. You've got the, the, the two big political parties strongly support open markets and free trade around the world. You know, in many, in many, uh, in many countries, they're becoming more protectionist. Uh, they're becoming right. insular. Uh, where we really embrace uh, embrace uh, the global economy, which is uh, which is a, a huge part of our prosperity. Yeah, you wonder what that is worth to, to foreign investors. I mean, it it, it uh, shifts sometimes. A couple of questions here for you, Minister Baird. So, how can Canada become more innovative, also competitive with other countries? Yeah, this this I find is one of the biggest challenges that we face to be innovative and to be uh, uh, more competitive. And more productive. Uh, the current government renamed the Department of Industry, the Department of Innovation, and uh, we hear a lot of great speeches and a lot of great policy papers, but not a lot of uh, not a lot of action. Uh, that's one of the huge challenges facing uh, the uh, the global economy, and and, and facing it particularly in uh, in Canada. There's a lot of exciting things going on. For example, on uh, University Avenue uh, here in uh, Toronto, in uh, the technology corridor around uh, Waterloo. Uh, but we need obviously to uh, to uh, to do a, put a lot more focus on it. Look what goes on in uh, in Israel with uh, with their innovation agenda. It's really extraordinary. Uh, I guess they don't have natural resources, uh, so they uh, they uh, they wanted to be uh, prosperous. They had to. Uh, they were forced into it. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, we we can perhaps roll back onto other parts of the economy. Speaking of other parts of the economy, the housing market. So obviously we know the story. The housing market has made up a big part of the economy when commodity prices sort of tanked after the financial crisis. And so there was a thought that because we had commodities coming off, we had to make sure that the housing side of things, you know, held things up, propped things up. What do you think now? Well, the housing sector is a huge part of our economic growth, and uh, even if it slows down a little bit, that'll have that'll be quite uh, consequential. I would be more bullish in the medium term. Um, the amount of immigration we have to this country, to uh, the Greater Toronto Area, Greater Vancouver Area, uh, and other and other major centers, will help fuel uh, the construction of new housing. Uh, at the same time, Canada, I think, for the OECD, has the lowest number uh, of houses per capita, of uh, homes per capita, uh, dwellings per capita, and. Uh, but we've got to do a lot more to uh, to make it easier for those to uh, to take place. And the amount of time it takes to get a project permitted is extraordinary. Uh, City of Toronto just increased their development charges by almost 50 percent, making it more expensive to uh, to build housing. And uh, we've got to take a much uh, a much more proactive approach 
to make it as easy as possible for quality housing to uh, to be built. And I, I, I fall back. We need a, a supply and demand issue. So uh, the right. um, find it uh, remarkable that uh, governments, particularly at the uh, at the local and provincial level, do everything they can by putting uh, by putting uh, red tape and regulation to slow it down. And then at the same time, then they say, we need more housing. So the government needs to build it, which is not uh, obviously the, the, the way to go. And constantly changing um, rent controls uh, and housing policy in that regard uh, doesn't uh, doesn't stimulate a lot of uh, investment that we saw, uh, particularly in the late 90s and early 2000s. Do you think immigration policy as it is right now is, is kind of doing the trick? Do you think it needs to change significantly or is it roughly doing what it needs to? Like, how, how do you view that? I, I mean, I think I strongly support immigration. I support high immigration levels. Uh, I do think we need to better align it with the labor market, whether that be uh, an agricultural worker working in Leamington picking tomatoes or be it, uh, you know, a, a trained nurse coming to Canada. We need to cut the red tape so that people can practice their uh, their trade. And if someone comes, let's say, from the Philippines with a nursing degree, and it doesn't quite match the skills you needed in Canada. Sure, that it's good if we could have a year long program to bring them up to a Canadian regulatory standard. But we really need to uh, we really need to shake the uh, to shake the tree and get uh, and get these policies changed because there's far uh, uh, there's far too many labor demands in uh, in uh, in this country that aren't being met. And obviously, we want young people. Uh, uh, there's a social contract in Canada. You work hard, you pay your taxes, then you get you know old age security, guaranteed income supplement when you're older. You get free health care, uh, but you paid in for years, and that's the challenge. Uh, the governments of all parts stripes get pulled on family reunification. Can I bring my nine year old grandmother to Canada? Yeah, right. So, the, so around the margin, but but generally, like a strong immigration policy, as you say. Yeah, we're we're blessed in Canada. We don't have the same uh, debates that they do, particularly in the United States or uh, or in Europe. Um, I think you know, all political parties strongly support high immigration levels. Uh, sure, we may argue around the sides, but it's got to be legal immigration. You know, there's. Uh, I, I hate to see. Uh, I hate to see what's going on in the southern United States when. Uh, you have so many people waiting the, in the queue to uh, to get into the United States, and uh, people are just you know two million people will just walk across the border uh, this year. Uh, in Canada, we've uh, we've managed to do it uh, much uh, much better. Uh, now we are blessed by having uh, the United States as our neighbor and having three oceans on the uh, on the other three uh, sides, so uh, that's a blessing. Um, there's a question about sanctions towards Russia, and you know essentially whether they've worked. And uh, very curious to get your views. Well, I mean, the, the estimates are that the Russian economy will contract by as much as six to eleven percent. So I think there's no doubt they've had a significant effect. And uh, the, the longer they're in place, the more they're uh, they're biting. You know, Aeroflot is not going to be able to get parts for its fleet. It hasn't had the the consequential effect I think that we had uh, hoped to basically try to shut down the Russian economy because China's trading with them, India's trading with them, Mexico's trading with them, Brazil's trading with them, uh, and even the uh, even the Western democracies are still buying their uh, their oil. How, like a country like Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia, who were uh, occupied for the better part of 40, 45 years, would allow themselves to become uh, dependent on Russian energy just escapes me. But that's why Canada's got to step up and do more liquefied natural gas to help fuel Europe. Is that, I mean, it sounds like a very good solution. Is it realistic? Well, we haven't been able to get anything built. So that's a fair, uh, fair criticism. That's why we've got to be consequential and we've got to make major regulatory reforms to get these projects uh, going uh i mean it'll help uh increase like up uh, to churchill out out through there's, Hudson uh, there's, Bay, get it out there, we've got all the, there, the icebreakers we need or we know technology well, anyway if we, if we can get trans mountain completed for the west coast that'll be huge for the oil sector 
If we can get the LNG plant on the West Coast done, that'll be hugely consequential. Those are both uh, well underway. But there's huge opportunities on uh, on our Atlantic coast uh, as well for LNG, particularly in uh, uh, in uh, Newfoundland. And this could create so much wealth in country, so much revenue to governments to pay for important uh, social programs like uh, healthcare and uh, education. And uh, we've just got to be more ambitious and focused on results, not process. How do you think ultimately we need to to go forward as as a country on the on the world stage? Like if you were to say one or two either alliances or groups to make sure we kind of hunker down and make sure we're we're there, what would would be some winning solutions going forward globally for Canada? We have uh, shared values with uh, Europe and the United States and nothing will ever change. Those are uh, those are the key uh, part of our uh, of our economic and security uh, alliances. At the same time, we've got to we've got to diversify and we've got to we've got to make priorities. Canada can't play everywhere in the world. Uh, we're a, a very and small country. We have country. these trade deals already. So do we just sort of amp those up somehow? I just see I just see Canada uh, at the uh, at the uh, foreign service level and at the political level in Ottawa with this government. They want to play everywhere. They want to be they want to be big players in sub-Saharan Africa. They want to be big players in the Middle East. They want when nothing's a priority, uh, you don't get uh, a lot done. And uh, sort of when I was foreign minister, we we talked about our, our major uh, alliances. Uh, we were very active in the Middle East and North Africa, and very active in Southeast Asia and with China because those uh, were uh, those that's where the world is going. Like Wayne Gretzky says, you go where the puck uh, is going, not where it is. And that's why it's important uh, that we have a good relationship uh, with China. It's a huge trade partner. Yeah, we may have honest differences of opinion, really differences of opinion with uh, with a few things that are going on. But uh, for international peace and security, it's vital that uh, we play on that ice uh, and not just in China, but in Southeast Asia as well. Uh, you know, the United States is now an ally of Vietnam. Who would have ever thought that? I would be sitting at a uh, at a meeting in Southeast Asia and North Korea would be uh, engaging in bellicose rhetoric against the uh, United States and Japan. And I look at John Kerry, he'd be leaning over, uh, uh, talking to uh, friendly in a friendly fashion with his uh, Vietnamese uh, counterpart. And, you know, he got three purple hearts uh, in Vietnam. So these alliances can uh, can shift uh, pretty quickly. Former Foreign Affairs Minister for Canada, John Baird, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for spending your time with us here today. Fantastic. Good to be with you, Pamela. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.